This is exactly right. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike, and we're the hosts of This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right. We're back with our seventh season, which is bigger and better than ever. Because guess what? We're now a weekly show. This season, we're tackling everything from long COVID to norovirus, from the supplement industry to IVF, and so, so much more. New episodes drop every single Tuesday. Follow This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. On the previous episode of Wicked Words. It's the story of four men who were murdered in New York over a three-year period in Manhattan, and they were or were presumed to be gay. And it's about the resulting police investigations. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. During part one of my interview with author Elon Green, we learned that a serial killer was murdering men in New York City in the late 1980s and early 90s. Four men were killed, two were affluent tourists, one was a sex worker, and the last was a local who had a small inner circle. A crime lab in Maine gets a hit on some fingerprints found on the bags containing the body parts of the victims. And the killer's prints are in the system because he's connected to a murder in 1973. Investigators finally have a break. But who do the prints belong to? This killer might surprise you. She knows that there are these matching prints, but she doesn't know precisely what they're matching to. So she takes these prints and brings them, uh, I think it was really down the road, to the State Bureau of Identification. And they pull up the case that the prints are attached to. And it's a murder from 1973. Wow. And um, she sees that there's a big stamp on the on the uh, packet that says expunged. And uh, she sees that these prints are attached to a murder trial that had resulted in, in an acquittal. In 1973? In 1973. So this is 20 years before the last murder. That's right. And the fingerprints were still in the system despite the expungement. So she goes back to the lab and one of her colleagues verifies her findings, and then... She's found the killer. Jumping out of her skin, she calls the New Jersey State Police, and, you know, she says, I got your guy. Who is the guy? Richard Westall Rogers, who was a nurse at Mount Sinai Hospital in Manhattan. So Mount Sinai is still just the wrong one, right? Didn't the tipster say Mount Sinai, but in Staten Island, not in New York? One of the tipsters had said St. Vincent's. Oh, St. Vincent's. Uh, in Staten Island. Okay. But they did get another tip that said Mount Sinai. <laughs> no, I mean, I verified that they actually had his file. 
<laughs> like they had him sitting there. How did they not put it together? There was just no, there was no physical evidence to connect the two, right? I mean, he was probably lost in a sea of other nurses. Years later, when that fingerprint analyst read the book, she got very upset. <laughs> she said, they had so much to work with, they should have solved this case in 1993. And she said, they had asked for the files from Mount Sinai. She said, we want the files of male nurses who live in Staten Island. And that's a finite number of nurses. And at that point, what they should have done was to send detectives to all of these men and interview them. But they didn't do that. That would have been based on that tip, right? That one tip that said a male nurse from Staten Island who worked at a hospital. Okay. That's right. Who worked at Mount Sinai and was seen at the townhouse. Okay. They got a tip in, in August of 1993 about a nurse at Mount Sinai. And the source had, the, this anonymous source had met this man at Julius, which was one of the oldest gay bars in the city and had taken him home and had awoken to find that the nurse was trying to tie him up. And one of the detectives had written in the daily notes he writes, the source states, the subject had an uncontrollable compulsion to tie him up. However, he resisted and fled his apartment. The source states, he then met the subject again by chance in townhouse, bar, and restaurant. He states at that time, the subject propositioned to go home again. However, he would not go home with it. The source states, the subject is a nurse at Mount Sinai Hospital and has an apartment on Staten Island. The source could offer no further information regarding the subject other than a physical description. Wow. So it's pretty clear. Yes. It just doesn't describe that many people. Right. It's kind of corroborating with the other tip. So what do we know about Richard Rogers Jr.? It depends. What do I know or what do detectives know? <laughs> Maybe a combo. What do they know when they first figure this out, when they first get the hit and everybody's excited after seven to eight years of waiting around for this, right? Well, they don't find out that much about him because they don't really need to once they have the fingerprints. They, of course, find that he's the nurse at Mount Sinai they get his work calendars, his personal calendars, his credit card records, so they can establish more or less where he's been, when he had days off, you know, where he was pretty much on any given day. They find that he visited the townhouse, that he visited the Five Oaks. There are people who remember him. And, you know, they act pretty quickly, pretty quickly once they have a name. What do they find out about that murder trial from 1973? What was that all about? Well, what happened was in 1973, Richard Rogers was a grad student at the University of Maine. He was studying French and he was living in an off-campus house with three other men. And one day in 1973, he came home and claimed that one of his housemates, Fred Spencer, came on to him and uh, attempting to also steal stuff out of his room. Some combination of the two. 
Richard attacked him with a claw hammer and hit him seven or eight times. Any one of the blows would have been fatal, a medical examiner said later. Was Richard out at the time? Depends on who you ask. But if you're asking, did the general population at the University of Maine know he was gay? Absolutely not. And it probably would have been foolish for him to have been out in 1973 in Maine. So after Richard was arrested, Richard was taken, you know, away by the state police. And then he was fingerprinted at the, I believe it was the Bangor County Jail. And in a way, this is where events really turn. Because whoever took his fingerprints at the county jail did an extraordinary job. Most fingerprints that were taken during that period and for many years after are terrible. (laughs) Because people are not properly trained in how to roll fingerprints. And, you know, one of the dirty little secrets of APHIS is that it's only as good as the fingerprints that are in the system. Right. And that's why fingerprints have come under such scrutiny, because you really, you have to have a high quality print. And then you have to have an analyst who knows what they're doing. And frequently at a crime scene, just grabbing a glass is not going to give you a good enough print. I went to the DMV last year and it took me five times to get the print right. So, so good. So they had a a really good person with a print pad. That's great. Yeah. So they took his fingerprints and eventually he stood trial for the murder of Fred Spencer and he pled self-defense. He had a locally famous lawyer named Errol Payne who had founded the law firm with future Secretary of Defense, William Cohen. Errol got him off on on self-defense. So this sounds like gay panic defense. Is that right? Is that essentially what it was? I think so. One of the associates in the law firm told me that that's what it was. But, you know, a transcript doesn't survive. Hmm. And I can't find any definitive proof that that was the case. However, I talked to people who were living in Orono and Bangor at the time And they said it was known that there was a so-called gay angle to this case. So my suspicion is that they thought, okay, like one gay guy killed another gay guy that can't possibly be worth locking him up over. Because there was nothing ambiguous about this. Um, When Richard killed Freddie, he did not call the police. He instead wrapped his body in a tent or a tent-like material, put him in the car, and dropped him off by the side of the road. Were there any indications of something similar? I mean, anything, was he tied up in any way? Like, looking back, does it seem like part of his M.O.? Besides, of course, wrapping him up. To me, the only thing that really points from point A to point B is taking him to another location and leaving the body and, you know, to some degree wrapping him up. I mean, it seems sort of like the, uh, you know, the first try. Mm -hmm. He was found not guilty. This was expunged. And he goes on and lives his life. Do we have any idea what happens to him between 73 and 91 when Peter is found? He's the first person to be found. He moves to New York. He enrolls in nursing school. He goes to Pace University. 
1979 or 1978, just immediately out of nursing school, he uh, gets hired by Mount Sinai, which is on a hiring spree at that time. They hired hundreds of nurses. And so it was a great time for him to be on the job market. And they hired him and he moved to Yonkers and uh, was commuting from Yonkers for a while. And he began working with cardiac surgeons and working with babies who had, uh, you know, just undergone the traumatic heart surgery. And he was considered to be quite an exceptional nurse, which is why he was working with the most difficult cases. Someone who has a lot of empathy. Yep. And contrary to the conventional wisdom about serial killers, he possessed great empathy and he could talk to parents and he could talk to children. And he was even known to be very funny and have a sense of humor. Eventually, he leaves Yonkers. He buys an apartment in Staten Island. He keeps getting promoted and he keeps working very hard, taking long vacations going on road trips all around the country. When he makes a stop in 1982 for his 10-year college reunion, they go to, I believe it was Daytona Beach or Orlando. And while he is there, a young man named Matthew John Piero disappears and his (sighs) murdered body is found and remains unsolved to this day. But... Detectives are quite certain that uh, the murder was committed by Richard Rogers, but that will remain open forever because he will never be tried for it. So before we get to what happens with Richard, the thing that has been nagging me has been these garbage bags full of body parts that are being deposited in these barrels with the hope that, you've said, most likely the hope that Richard was hoping they were going to get picked up and he wouldn't get caught. What do you think, Elon, are the chances that he got lucky sometimes and that there were some that got picked up? Oh, I mean, personally, I feel it's 100%. I tend to agree with the investigators who think that there are probably dozens of other victims. I think that there are many cases that are classified as missing persons cases and probably just aren't. I think it strains belief to think that he did not murder anybody between 1973 and 1991. Yep. I mean, I suppose that could happen, and I suppose it has happened. But given how many people he killed in such a short period of time between 1991 and 1993, it seems unlikely to me. And I'm just, I'm not commenting on his state of mind or anything like that. I don't know and I don't care, but it does seem like something would have happened in those 18 years. How do we as a society reconcile these two types of people? The nurse, the empathetic nurse who's caring and outgoing, and then someone who can change so quickly. So for a little while, I did try to actually reconcile what I thought I knew about Richard with this new information about him being a wonderful nurse and having empathy and a sense of humor. And then I realized that I didn't have to do that because we are not 
the same person to everybody in our life. Hmm. We are different people when we're with our parents or our partners or our superiors at work. I bet if they all compared notes, maybe there'd be some overlap, but I bet a lot of wouldn't. And I don't know if we have to reconcile this stuff or if it's just simply a part of being a human being. Doesn't it concern you, though, that somebody like that has the ability to be such a different person? This guy, Richard Rogers, seems to me to be the definition of, of what we fear a killer is. Someone who is so out of the ordinary, such an outlier. Sure, but I guess I don't find it so troubling or disconcerting because I just think that that's a way more common so-called contradiction or whatever you want to call it than we'd like to believe. I think you just have to be willing to not see somebody like Richard as someone who's so anomalous and to not see his particular evil as something unusual because I don't think it is. It's very comforting for society to, you know, look at people like that and think, you know, wow, this is singular. It's not. So in the year 2000, police have now his records, his credit card information. What happens next? Are they arresting him immediately? So that's not what they want to do. What they want to do is to surveil him because they are pretty aware that while they are pretty certain they've got their guy, they don't know that much about him. They don't know what he does when he's not working. They don't know if he has other properties. Part of what they're so concerned about is they don't know where the crime scene is. So they think, well, maybe he's got a dungeon somewhere. Hmm. You know, maybe he's got an apartment we don't know about deep in the woods. Or, and there's a lot of questions. They need answers. So they talk to the NYPD and they are more than happy to turn over this part of the case to the NYPD because you don't want an out-of-state agency surveilling a suspect in a location they're not familiar with. Yeah. They'll, they'll stand out. And so it's all agreed that over Memorial Day weekend of 2001 that the NYPD will surveil him. And people differ on how long this surveillance was supposed to last, but, you know, certainly it was going to be at least a couple of days. So everybody's very excited about this prospect. And the New Jersey detectives and the Rockland County detectives are all at their respective homes having barbecues on Memorial Day weekend. And then they start getting phone calls. And what they find is that Richard... W. Rogers has been picked up and arrested and is sitting in one police plaza in Manhattan. And as more than one detective said, on what grounds? The NYPD had jumped the gun. What I was told was Bernard Carrick, the police commissioner, essentially wanted to do a favor for his boss, Rudolph Giuliani, the mayor, whose mother was a patient at Mount Sinai. And although empirically she was not in any danger at all, it was decided that they did not want a serial killer running around Mount Sinai Hospital while the mayor's mother was a patient. 
Are you serious? <laughs> really? That's right. And so they scooped him up, and it short-circuited the surveillance. And that was that. I'm talking with author Elon Green about the suspect in the murders of four men in New York. He's a nurse named Richard Rogers Jr. This killer is not at all who investigators would have suspected, but now he's being arrested by the NYPD and the police prepared to interrogate him. Was the NYPD even a major player in this task force? They weren't, right? Wasn't it led by Rockland County, you said? Rockland County and the New Jersey State Police. Yeah. And although they did some work, I would not say that they did any work that was decisive. So he's under arrest, and NYPD arrests him. What happens next? Does he lawyer up? Does he talk? So they picked him up under a bit of a ruse. They told him that they simply wanted to get him out of Mount Sinai. And so they said that there were incidents of credit card fraud and that he had been the victim of, and they wanted to talk to him about it. At some point, he realized that he really wasn't there for an incident of credit card fraud. So when the detectives get there, of course, they don't have much time to repair, but two of them go in. They don't really beat about the bush. They sit down and they ask him if he knows each of the victims. And perhaps because... He knew he'd been seen with Michael Sakara. He acknowledges knowing Michael Sakara. Then before they can really go in anything else, you know, Richard says, well, I don't know how much more I can really help you. <laughs> and one of the detectives snaps, we're not here because we need your help, Richard. We're here because we have physical and circumstantial evidence, you know, that you murdered these people. And from there, once they go through the evidence, Richard clams up. He does not really give them anything, and never would again. So he's charged with how many murders? He's charged with two. He's charged with two because of where the bodies were left. So he's charged in the case of Tom and Anthony. Okay. I think maybe Rockland County would have charged him, except that the evidence had been damaged. The medical examiner had destroyed the bags. And in the case of Peter's death, I kept hearing that Look, if there ever comes a time when Richard is let out of jail, he will be charged in Pennsylvania the second his feet hit the front steps of the prison. Okay. But because he was being charged for two of the murders, the other jurisdictions didn't feel any pressure to charge him as well. So he's charged with these two murders, and he pleads not guilty? Yes. And it's about four and a half years later finally goes to trial. So this is 2005? Correct. Okay. So what happens at trial? Does he have a defense? I wasn't there. Your evidence is phony. Somebody planted the fingerprint kind of thing? No, they they don't really dispute the evidence. They just basically say, you don't know when those fingerprints were on the bags. <laughs> he has an excellent lawyer, a veteran lawyer of capital cases, well-regarded, probably couldn't have done much better. Mm-hmm. But there was really only so much they could do. I mean, part of the defense was, look, you don't know when the fingerprints were on the garbage bags. But also, 
a big part of the defense was, you don't know where the crime scene is, so you don't know if Richard was ever at the crime scene. Furthermore, you may not even have had the right to try him in this case because you don't necessarily have jurisdiction. The prosecutor actually thought that this was not a bad defense, and he was not certain he was going to be victorious. Could they bring up the 73 case in court or no, because it was expunged? They could not bring that up. I I believe that is not brought up, but they could bring up the murders of both Peter and Michael, as supposed to establish a pattern. The judge was pretty lenient about what they could bring in. He also drew the line at bringing in the murder from 1982. I believe he said that in the case of the murder from 1982, the M.O. was too different. And as far as the murder in 1973, it was simply too old. So is there a turning point in the trial or does it just go to the jury? Not really. I mean, one of the reasons I actually don't write about the trial in any great detail in the book is because although while it is a very interesting trial and riveting, it is not unusual. There are no dramatic Uh, twists and turns. And in the end, the prosecutor just simply put together an extraordinarily good, mostly circumstantial case. They took a few hours and convicted him. And I got a hold of an unredacted version of Wadir. So I figured out who the jurors were and I got one on the phone. And, um, you know, she said there wasn't a whole hell of a lot of doubt. Yeah. What was the coverage like in the press? It got a little bit of coverage in the New York Times, got some coverage in the Asbury Park Press. I think that was more day-to-day coverage. The New York Times covered it, you know, at the end. There there was some coverage here and there, but that was basically it. My feeling is that there probably would have been some more written about the case after the conviction, except that a few months after the conviction, a couple of planes hit the World Trade Center. Uh, yeah. So is he in prison now? Is he still alive? Yes, he has been in New Jersey State Prison since 2006, which is when he was sentenced. At least if his letters are anything to go by, he's not having a bad time. Has he written you? Have you contacted him? I have never talked to him. He has never returned any of my letters. But he does love writing letters and corresponds with people who happily pass along the letters. (laughs) Does he know that, I wonder? He knows, I think, about one of the correspondents and has bad-mouthed me a little bit in some of those letters. (laughs) What does he say? He thinks I'm a hack and he didn't like the letters that I sent him. Oh, (laughs) So a killer who's uh, critical of your writing. Okay. He says he he may or may not read it and doesn't know if he could even get a copy of it if he wanted to. (laughs) Was this a case of victims not being paid attention to because of their sexual orientation? So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that was definitely a factor and not necessarily on a case by case basis or an investigator by investigator basis. But when you are talking about institutions that are bigoted, and and never mind the media, who also have the same biases, your case is not going to be treated with white gloves, and you're not going to be treated like Patty Hearst or whatever you want to compare it to. I think that many investigators did good work. Some did shitty work. 
But even the ones who were doing good work were operating under a system that did not value those victims. There's only so much they could do. As far as the media coverage, some of it was good, some of it was not. Uh, But even the coverage that was gross had research value because sometimes, even if a reporter was a piece of shit, they were well-sourced. And so that mattered from a journalism perspective. Piece of shit in what way? The language they used to describe the victims or? Yeah, that's right. Or just the general palpable disgust. In in the tabloids would refer to it as a gay slay. Oh, gosh. The language of the time. What did you learn from writing this book just about journalism and what you yourself, Elon Green, are interested in writing about? Did this teach you anything? Have you reflected on that? I realized that I'm not so much attracted to stories as I am attracted to people. I never had a bad day working on this book. And that's because, you know, as bleak as the subject matter was, and it was unremittingly bleak, I got to talk to incredible people every day. And there were only a few exceptions where I would get off the phone and I'd think, oh, that that person's a piece of shit. (laughs) It was really about the people and... Obviously, the investigation is sort of the narrative driver in some ways, but the privilege of being tasked to put together the lives of these men was just so exciting. And I just found that such an extraordinary thing to be asked to do. I was never happier when I was just thumbing through a yearbook, finding people to talk to finding fraternity members of Peter Anderson or classmates of Tom Mulcahy and ending up on the phone with Whitey Bulger's brother uh, or talking to the last living member of the composing room of the New York Law Journal who remembered Michael. For me, that was the excitement maybe people get from breaking some political story. That was the excitement I felt finding out what Tom Mulcahy did after school or where he worked in college. Because, you know, I've written about famous people, some of them internationally known. To some degree, it's not really a challenge because they're so well-documented. If you're writing a book about Bob Dylan and you want to know what he was doing in June of 1963, I guarantee you somebody's written about it. But when you're writing about somebody who is only known in the circles of his family and friends who are still alive after 80 years. It's a much harder task and much more rewarding, I would argue. Well, one of the things I really liked hearing you say is that the lack of information that you found about Anthony, the third victim, was frustrating to you. And I think that that is not out of a, I have to find the facts, journalistic integrity thing. I think that's there, but it sounds like it's more of You cannot show the impact of this man's death without revealing who the man is. And that's part of being an author. Yes, I felt that in order to feel the pain of somebody's absence, you have to know what they were like when they were there. And especially in the case of Anthony, who had gotten the short end of the stick during his life, and then during his death, when the press covered him, I felt like such an asshole that I was basically doing the same thing to him, not for lack of trying, but even find out where he went to high school or if he went to high school. There were loose threads here and there, but it just didn't go anywhere. That was frustrating, but it also just was painful. 
But it shows how vulnerable Anthony, someone like Anthony was. And people like Anthony continue to be with predators, predators that aren't necessarily going to kill them, but that just will demean them. So I think you did an incredible job with the book. And is there anything that I haven't covered? We could talk a little bit about trauma and the way that journalists traumatize sources. Mm -hmm. One of the hardest parts in the book to write was the chapter about the murder of Fred Spencer in Maine in 1973. And this was a murder that, once it was uncovered 18 years later, was literally relegated to a sidebar. It had been written about somewhat contemporaneously in 1973, but not much. And it was the most labor-intensive part of the book. I interviewed Fred's high school classmates. I interviewed his high school girlfriend. Uh, I interviewed his physics teacher. I was in touch with his nephew, who didn't really know him, never got to know him. And I, for years, you know, sort of lightly lobbied to talk to Fred's siblings. But they never wanted to. For them, this was such an open wound mm -hmm. all these years later. And Fred was a really extraordinary kid and brilliant. And it was a rough chapter in part because I could see what my work was doing to people. When I talked to his girlfriend, I gave her a pseudonym in the book because she's actually kind of a high-powered person. I talked to her for an hour, an hour and a half, and she told me about their relationship and, and, and the aftermath of his murder. And I got a call from her a couple of weeks later and she said, you know, I was a mess for mm -hmm. like a solid week after we talked. And it's just something that I think about a lot now. Like you're, you're asking people to essentially relive the worst periods of their lives for your own gain. And I don't think we think enough where what we're asking them to do is affecting them. And... I definitely had decided early on in the writing of the book that if somebody said no to me, I was not going to ask them twice. Hmm. Okay. Unless there was a fact-checking issue or something and something they had to respond to. But just to sort of sum it up, you know, regardless of what I was trying to do, and I felt that there was an important bigger picture here with these stories, for the son of a victim, say, I was just writing about how his dad cheated on his mom and then he was murdered. And that's also a valid way to look at it. And it's not for me to say that anyone is missing out on the bigger picture. Because that's their picture. Thanks for joining us this season on Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Exactly Right. A huge debt of gratitude to each of the wonderful journalists who took the time to chat with us. Wicked Words will be back next year with all new episodes. In the meantime, Tenfold More Wicked is back. Our new season introduces you to the Tiger Woman and her family. She's our first female killer. We're taking you to 1920s Los Angeles with a story involving a fatal drive, a jailbreak, and a hammer. The new season of Tenfold More Wicked drops on Monday, January 17th, but you can hear the trailer on January 10th if you follow Tenfold More Wicked's feed.
If you love historical true crime, please check out my books, American Sherlock and Death in the Air. This has been an Exactly Right, Tenfold More Media production. Alexis Amorosi is our producer. Andrew Epen is our sound designer. Ella Middleton is a researcher for us. Curtis Heath does the composition. Nick Toga did the artwork. And Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Daniel Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. And if you know of a historical true crime story that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.